Amen. Amen. Man, I just love that last song. Um, just the phrase, you're bigger than I thought you were, is so cool. And even as we were worshiping this morning, I was thinking of just what we're about to dig into in scripture. And it's just so cool how sometimes worship and our messages connect of what we're going to dig into scripture for. And one of the things that I'm really excited to talk with you guys about is just how it's bigger than I thought you were of how much scripture is like soaked in this majesty and awe. There's just things that when, when we look at scripture, at our Bibles, we can have these aha moments where the light switch can go on. And sometimes we can even have moments like, man, God, you're bigger than I thought. I didn't see that before. And so this morning, we're going to be digging into um, scripture. So the series that we've been going through in, uh, these, for these past couple of weeks is called Routine. And it's all about uh, our routines and how are we following after Jesus? How can we model our lives after Jesus? What was Jesus's routine? How did he live? The best way for us to model our lives after Jesus is to look at what he does and what he says and his actions. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus approaches scripture. And this is something that I am really excited to talk to you guys about because something that gets me really pumped is when I can, like, nerd out to the Bible. So just a fair warning, there will be a chart, okay? So maybe some of you won't be as excited, but who are my chart lovers, okay? Yeah, we got some chart lovers. So this is going to be exciting for me, and I'm excited to talk to you guys about because what excites me about this is that scripture, that our Bible is not just another book. It's not just some thing that we pick up in the library that just has a nice meaning. Oh, that's nice. You put it away. No, this book, scripture is alive. Scripture is alive and active. And that is so cool to me that you can live your entire life and not master everything that this book is telling us. How exciting is that, that we can never get bored with this scripture, and how that we can just come back over and over and over again and find something new and living and beautiful to impact our lives so that we can look to the person of Jesus and be like, wow, man, you're bigger than I thought you were. And so for this morning, we're looking at scripture. So these past, uh, this week and next week, we're going to be talking about scripture, how Jesus approached the Bible. So this week is more of like an introductory, like why, why should we look at scripture? How does Jesus look at scripture? And next week, we're going to have a little bit more of a practical, like, okay, so how? How do I open the scriptures? How do I have a Bible? How, how do I have um, a quiet time, a God time, a Bible study? I don't know. There's always these, like, tr new trendy words to describe, just spending time in the Word with God. And so for this morning, before we jump into how Jesus looks at scripture and how he uses it, I want us to first check and ask the question, how have we approached the Bible in an unhelpful way? How have we looked at scripture? How have we brought our uh, misconceived notions and approached the Bible that's unhelpful and maybe even incomplete? 
And so as I've been looking through uh, this message this week, it's been really cool because uh, I feel like God's been teaching me this for quite a while. And so I didn't have to do too much research on this message because I've been going through um, these classes called the Bible Project. So if you know anything, if you're a Bible nerd like me, you love the Bible Project. And so I've been looking through and they've been talking through and really, they're so smart. So most of the things that I'm going to tell you guys is not from me. Like, I'm a pea brain girl. I don't have a lot of knowledge on stuff, but man, I get excited when I can learn things and learn from smarter people than I am. And so a a lot of this information is coming from the Bible Project. If you guys want to, if Bible Project, if you're out there, if you want to sponsor us, this isn't an ad, but it could be. Like, this could be something we could work through. But anyway, so I've been talking through and looking at um, the Bible Project. And also, it's really cool for me. I have um, a very special mentor in my life. And her name's Becky, and she's sitting right there. Sorry, I'm embarrassing you. Um, but she is also someone that I go to for things like this. Like, she is so wise and so um, knowledgeable about these things about scripture and getting scripture right. And so it's been exciting for me to like have this time to compile all this stuff to present it with to you guys because I think sometimes we miss the point of scripture. That we can do a lot of damage when we misread scripture, when we misinterpret scripture. So when I want us to first notice how are we approaching the Bible in an unhelpful way. So the Bible Project gave like three different examples. So this is a little bit of Bible Project stuff. Um, but these are three incomplete pictures of what the Bible is and how it was written. They're incomplete. So with these three examples, I want us to be careful because each of these are an incomplete way to look at Scripture, to open your Bible, to have this uh, approach to it. If we're only using the Bible in these three ways, we're missing it. We're having an incomplete view it's important that the, each of these three have warning signs. There's caution tape around them. But also with each of these, there's really good instincts behind them. So we can't just throw all of these out, but we need to look at what the true picture is. So first, I want to explain the first incomplete picture of um, looking through the Bible, and that's just a hero story. So what I mean by that is you're isolating these stories in scripture where you just have this character moment and you just get a moral lesson from it. It's almost like treating the Bible like a fable. Like you look at these big people like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's okay. So that's what I learned from this. Or David and Goliath, man, I'm going to grab this passage and just learn this little bit. And it's all I'm going to focus on is these people, these caricatures of these people and just looking at these passages, ripping them out of scripture, and just trying to find a moral lesson from it. The danger with this is a lot of times when we do that, when we approach scripture like that, we're rewriting a lot of it. We're reading way too much into the context, and I think sometimes also there's a caution of placing yourself unnecessarily in the passage itself. So I see this a lot, and Becky will testify to this. She talks about this constantly, I think, anytime I talk to her, about how we do this a lot with the story of David and Goliath. A lot of times when you hear people talk through this story of David and Goliath, they try to make it seem like you're David, and anything you're afraid of is, is Goliath. Now I want to caution us on that. I want to caution us deeply on that idea because this isn't the point of scripture. When we see these hero stories, they're pointing to a deeper meaning. 
And the good instinct behind looking at scripture with this mindset is that we can see and learn from these people. We can get moral lessons from some of these things. But this isn't the whole point of why we have these people in the Bible. So that's the first one that I want to be careful of when we look at scripture. That it's not just picking apart a hero's story. The second is treating the Bible like it's a theology dictionary. So what I mean by this is you only go to the Bible when you have this theological question. That's the only time you approach it. It's like Google. You're trying to find a quick answer for all of these things. And the caution behind treating the Bible like this is that a lot of things will get lost in context. If you're just flipping through and looking for an answer for all this, there's so much more written in here that when we just pigeonhole or cherry-pick verses, we're missing the context of this. That we're just doing it to prove text or to prove a point in an argument or maybe even a political ideology. Man, I want us to be careful with that when we're looking at scripture to just be a theological dictionary, just a place where we can find a quick answer. And this is still a good thing sometimes. It's good that we wanna come to scripture to answer all of our moral and theological questions. Yes, that is true, that's what we should be doing, but that's not the only way that scripture can be used. There's so much deeper context written in this book that we also need to uh, take note of. And the last, approach that we need to be cautious of, uh, that's probably, I think, one that we see a lot of, is like this aesthetic Instagram post moment, where we've all seen these, where people just put these really cute quotes, and it looks like, you know, like millennial pink, and like really nice hand lettering, and you just post that on your story, or on your Instagram, and I've done this too before, but man, this shouldn't just be the only way we're interacting with scripture. We can't just grab passages that make us feel good, that are heartwarming and have pithy quotes that only focus on happy things. Because a lot of times scripture, uh, there's difficult things in here. There's hard truths that we need to read and to understand. So we can't just pull it apart and only look for this stuff that makes us feel good. We need to look at it as a holistic picture that we need to look at scripture that is not just a place to find a quick, easy fix that there's lots of other things in here that it's pointing us towards. And sometimes we do need to be challenged. We do need to have that little feeling in our heart when we read something. We're like, oh, man, I feel convicted. That didn't make me feel warm and fuzzy. Because scripture isn't supposed to always make us feel warm and fuzzy. Sometimes we have to be challenged. But with this, it does, on the other side, scripture should comfort us. It should encourage us. So it should be used and it can be used in our lives to make us feel good. But all three of these things, if we just approach scripture in one of these ways, we're missing a key part of it. That yes, it has good and bad instincts that come along with it. So how how do we approach scripture then? If these are all an incomplete picture of what it is to look at it, what should we do? How should we approach scripture then? If, it can, if all three of these are incomplete in our minds and in our hearts, how can we approach scripture? How can we read it? A verse that um, is really big in understanding the importance of scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says this. All scripture is inspired by God 
and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So this is like the goal for scripture, that we can use it, that is it is all inspired by God, that is all from God, that all, every piece of scripture, all of it, could be used to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, to convict our hearts, to correct us when we're wrong, to teach us what to do, what is right, so that we can prepare and use it to do every good work, to give glory to God. So that is the goal of scripture. And so those three examples that I gave are incomplete. They're not all the full picture of how to approach scripture. So how does Jesus approach scripture? If that's how we're supposed to model our lives after, if that's what we're supposed to be doing, how does he then approach scripture? And so first, um, it's important to note that when Jesus was on earth before he uh, died and was resurrected, uh, the scriptures that the people had, that Jesus and the Jewish people had, was basically like cut in half from what we have. Basically, it was called just the Old Testament. And so I have this little chart up here. This is like the first fun chart. And it's kind of weird, but so on the left, it's showing um, what the Jewish people had when they are talking about scripture. So they had the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was all chunked together. And that was called the Torah or like the history of it. And then they had the prophets, uh, former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. They had later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joah. I'm not going to read all the rest of those. But so they had the prophets all together as well. And then they had these writings, uh, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, all of these things, and this is what they knew of Scripture. This is what they had, and that's how their Hebrew Bible was set up. So it's slightly different from how our modern Bibles are set up. They're the same books, but they're ordered slightly differently. And if you ever want to look into it, man, I would love to look into it with you because it's very interesting, but we can't go there yet. But so we have all of these, uh, the Old Testament. It's written with narrative and history and poetry and prophecy, and it has all these things. And at the time of uh, Jesus... It wasn't just bound in this nice little Bible. People didn't just have this walking around. It was all written on scrolls, these like huge scrolls that you would have to roll out and read all together in the same sort of reading of one of it. It wasn't broken up into verses or chapters. It was just one scroll, like Genesis. This is the Genesis scroll, all of it together. At that time also, they didn't have like personal scrolls of the Old Testament or scripture which is also really weird for us to think about. I feel like we have, in our modern age, like a surplus of Bibles. Like, I think I own probably like six or seven Bibles. I'm not even kidding you. It's like a problem. But I, 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 like at that time, though, the Jewish people and Jesus, they didn't have their own personal Bible to hold on to. All of those scrolls were kept in temples or sacred spaces, and they wouldn't just get to look at them whenever they wanted. They would go to temple and have them read aloud to them. So they had this different approach to scripture. Rather than us just like reading it ourselves, they would go and have it read to them. 
where they would listen to scripture instead. So this is what Jesus was familiar with at the time. This is how it was set up. And I think it's important for us to just remove ourselves sometimes from the context and really get what's happening in the culture of what Jesus was going through. Because it's really different from what we experience and how we approach scripture today. But it's really cool still. So Jesus knew that is how he had scripture. We even see there's parts in the New Testament where Jesus goes and reads and opens a scroll and reads it out loud to the people. And so we see that that's how he interacted with them. But how did he, like, perceive scripture? Like, how, what was his thought process behind scripture? Like, what, how did he approach it? What did it mean to him? And the best place for us to look uh, to see Jesus' approach to scripture is in Luke 24. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to start in verse 13. So to give a little bit of context before we jump into this passage in Luke 24. This is um, a part of the gospel. So Jesus at this point has died and three days later, he's resurrected. So this is the day of resurrection. Jesus has been crucified by the Jews. He's died. And this day we're going to look at is the day of resurrection. What was he doing? So we see the people going to the tomb. But there's also this really cool interaction that Jesus does on his resurrection day. Um, it's on the road to Emmaus, where he interacts with these two followers of Jesus. And they're having this conversation. And so we're looking at this passage because I think this gives a really good picture of what Jesus saw the purpose of Scripture was. That what Jesus thought of Scripture, of how he approached Scripture. So starting in verse 13, it starts like this. The same day two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And they had talked and discussed these things. Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? So we're just going to pause here for just a moment. Just to recognize some of these things and pick out some stuff. So we see these two followers of Jesus. They're walking and talking about what's just happened. About Jesus' death and just talking through all, all the crazy stuff that they've just experienced and witnessed and saw. And they don't know yet that Jesus has resurrected. And they're walking and they're disappointed. We see later on that we see that they're um, sad. They're really sad and disappointed as they're walking and talking through what's just occurred. And then we see Jesus appear on the scene but it's really cool in verse 16, it says that, but God kept them from recognizing him. So for some reason, God is preventing these two from recognizing that it was Jesus, that they're walking with Jesus in this moment. So they have no clue that this is Jesus. So have that in your heads. So picking up in verse 18, then one of them said, Cleopas replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things that had happened here the last few days. What things, Jesus asked, which is like, Jesus, okay, Jesus, you know. So, 
um, but he doesn't. But they don't know that you know. They don't know that we know that they know that you know. Anyway, looking <laughs> um, back up again. The things had happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning. They came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had hoped. So first, let's take a little pause after reading this. So we see the men start to tell Jesus of what have just happened, what they perceive has just happened. And we said, they, how do they see Jesus? And they answer this by saying he was a prophet, that he did powerful miracles, that he was a mighty teacher. We see that they're giving him credit where credit is due. He is a prophet. He is a powerful teacher. But there's a shift in their understanding of who Jesus is. And it's found in verse 21. Let me read it one more time. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. We had hoped he was the Messiah. So we see like the part of them that they're not getting. That they see Jesus' death as a failure. That they knew who Jesus was. We see that they were followers of Jesus. They knew him. They trusted in him, but they, they saw his death as a failure, and they're disappointed that they feel like they've been let down from all of these things that have just happened. That, man, they had an incorrect view of Jesus because they saw his death as a failure that proves that he wasn't the Messiah. So you see, this, they had this idea, the Jewish people at the time were looking for this Messiah. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, in their Hebrew Bibles. And remember that chart I just read? It's prophesied about this Messiah, this one to come, someone who will redeem Israel. And so at the time, the Jewish people were anticipating that. They were looking for that. And so we see these men thought, maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's Jesus. He, he might be the one. But then when Jesus dies, they're like, no. I guess we got it wrong. It wasn't him. We thought he could have been the Messiah, but I guess not. Their idea of redemption, as we'll see later on, was completely wrong. They saw his death as not being a redeeming quality. They were seeking out political and social freedom rather than salvation that only comes through Jesus. So this is where their hope is lying. We see them, and so then uh, we see Jesus respond to these guys. Picking up in verse 25, he says this. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets, the, all, the, all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them 
through the writings of Moses and all the prophets and explain from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus does this really cool thing here. At first glance, he seems to be pretty harsh. Like he seems like pretty straight with them, like you foolish people. He's calling them foolish. Because he's, why is he calling them foolish? Because they should have known from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, that the Messiah should have to suffer and die. Jesus is saying, you should have known that. It was in the Old Testament. It says this in the scriptures. You find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that, that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Jesus is saying, no, it was necessary for me to die. No, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer in order to redeem. Because Jesus died does not mean that redemption doesn't happen. It's because he dies that redemption happens. And Jesus is trying to push these men to understand this. That it says this in the Old Testament. That it was right there in front of them. But they just weren't seeing it. And then we see something like super cool and just like one little verse. I wish we could like have way more context, more knowledge about all of things that happen in this verse. But maybe in heaven, God will tell us. It's so cool. But he says this, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus then takes these two men, and we don't know exactly where he goes, but he goes through all of the Old Testament and points to where it's talking about him. That all of the Old Testament then points to Jesus. That as they're walking, Jesus does this like the coolest Bible study ever where they're like, whoa, I never thought of this before. But he's like pointing out all of these things like, do you see this? And then this happened and then this happened. And so Jesus is saying all of the scriptures are pointing to him. So finishing up in verse 28, we see the end of this. I'm going to read 28 through 49. This is just a really cool chunk of Jesus just pushing into this idea that, man, the Old Testament is pointing to me. Man, open your eyes. See it. It's about me. Verse 28 says this. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. Oh, so cool. That all of that, that, like the coolest like light bulb moment ever, where they just got the coolest Bible study ever where it's talking about how all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus breaks the bread, which is a symbol of his body broken, his death, gives it to them, and then that's the moment that they're like, this is Jesus. This is the one. This is the Messiah. So then we see they get so excited. They say to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they had found the 11 disciples and the others who gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. 
Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. Man, what a, like a jump scare, sheesh. But the whole group was startled and frightening, thinking that they're seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in belief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Awesome, love that. Same Jesus, same. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. I don't know. I wouldn't have asked for that, but anyway. And he ate it, and they watched. Then he said, okay, so listen up. This is really cool. Then he said, when I was here with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Exactly how they set up their Bibles. Exactly how they knew of Scripture that it was the law of Moses and prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He does it again. I don't know. I wish, like, that's so cool. Anyway, and he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father has promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with the power of heaven. So I know that was a lot. But man, it's such a cool picture of Jesus on his resurrected day. That he's talking with these men and he's saying, guys... It's about me. The scriptures, they were about me. You're looking at it from a different way, the wrong way. Scripture is about me. That everything written from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled to point to the person of Jesus, to the redemptive work that he's done on the cross. That's what it's all leading towards. And that's, we see like the tension rising that Jesus is trying to get us all to see that it's about his redeeming work. That's what scripture is. Jesus' approach to scripture is this. It's all about him. It's all about him. All of this, that's how we can approach our Bibles. That's when we read something it's about, it's pointing to Jesus, to the redeeming work. Another great verse that talks through this is John 5, 39 through 40. It says this, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Again, Jesus is saying, it's about me. You're searching for something completely wrong. You're trying to find something to help you earn your faith or your salvation, and it's not going to work because all of it is pointing to the redeeming work of Jesus. 
There's this really cool quote that Becky actually showed me this week. And this guy, um, Alistair Begg, explains the Bible in just a really simple and cool way. So I want to read it for us. We find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. Let's just summarize beautifully. Just all of it is pointing to him. So when we go to read our Bibles, we can look at it from that perspective. That it's about Jesus. How is what I'm reading in scripture pointing towards the redeeming story of Jesus, the redeeming work of him being the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, the true Moses, the high priest? How is all of it pointing to Jesus and how he can redeem us through that? That is how Jesus approaches scripture. So what now? We see that Jesus sees scripture as it being all about him. So what does that mean for us? I want us to ask ourselves, how are you approaching scripture? How are you approaching scripture? And maybe it's in one of those incomplete ways. Maybe you're approaching scripture just to only have these fable-like stories, this hero moment, just to have this moment to see this great grand story. Maybe you're approaching scripture just to have a quick and easy answer, a quick, easy fix. Maybe you're just approaching scripture just to feel good about something. Or maybe you're looking at scripture and your quiet time and your God time and you're just checking it off the list. You're just checking it off the list to hopefully earn your own salvation. And all of these are incomplete ways to look at scripture. Because if we don't first recognize that this is about Jesus, we're missing it. If we don't first approach scripture and know that all of this is pointing to his redeeming work, we're missing it. It's all about Jesus. So how are we approaching scripture? What would it look like in your life if you approach scripture in the same way that Jesus did? That what if when you read your Bible, you looked for, how is this pointing to Jesus? How is this pointing to his redeeming work? How is this pointing to him being my savior and my king? How can we look at scripture in this way? And man, I... Something that came to mind this week is just Psalm 1, and I'm going to flip over to it really quick, because I think this plays into how we approach scripture. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. And are we delighting in the law? I know for me, when I approach scripture, this is my prayer. Man, I want to delight in your word, Father. I want to delight in the words and the truth that you've given us. So how can we as students approach scripture in this way? How can we also delight in the law 
in the prophets, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, so that we can see the redeeming work of Jesus. I want to challenge each of us to do so this week as we look through scripture, to see him. And man, it's so encouraging that this is not something that we're going to get automatically, that this isn't something that just happens really quickly. But as Christians, we're committed to basically being lifelong learners of this book, of committing to maybe not fully understand everything in here, but we get to learn from it every day in every new moment. We can look and read because this is an active work all centered around Jesus and his redeeming work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scriptures, Father. And Lord, I ask that we start to understand and accept and see that it is all about you, Jesus. That it's all about you, Father. And I pray that that will impact our hearts and our minds this week. That whether we're approaching your word or listening to your word, or spending time in worship with you, we can recognize and see that it's all about you, Jesus. So Father, I ask that you help us to live like that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you equip us and empower us to do so as we go about our weeks, Father. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for your son that you've sent us to redeem and save us in all things, we pray. Amen.